0: Understanding that being a member of an underrepresented minority, understanding a sliver of racism or understanding a sliver of privilege doesn't mean you understand all of it is really important for authors to, to know, to realize that when they're speaking about solutions, for example, those solutions will only work for a certain number of people. Those are almost never global solutions. When they're talking about stories there are rarely universal stories <laughs> there are are rarely universal experiences and you have to include that at least a sense of that in your writing or you are creating the experience that i assume unintentionally leaves people out it leaves people on the sidelines and makes them feel
1: excluded Start writing the book you've dreamed about.
2: Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today we're going to look at a very important piece of authorship that I believe is becoming more and more significant every day as we attempt to become a more inclusive understanding, welcoming community for one another. When we're approaching the process of authorship, and we are participating in the process of authorship, there are a lot of ways that we could inadvertently exclude readers from our audience who are people that we would really love to reach and love to include and love to welcome into our author fold. And it is with this in mind that I am thrilled to introduce to you Celeste Headley. Now, Celeste is an internationally recognized journalist, radio host, professional speaker, and the author of multiple best selling books, including We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and Speaking of Race, Why Everyone Needs to Talk About Racism, and How to Do It. Her newest project is a script original. Called It Starts With Self Compassion. Celeste is also the president and CEO of Headway DEI, a nonprofit that works to bring racial justice and equality to journalism and media through targeted training and interventions. In her 20 year career in public radio, Celeste has been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Broadcasting and anchored programs including Here and Now, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition on the National Public Radio. Celeste is a regular guest host on NPR and American Public Media, and in 2019, she received the Media Changemaker Award. So today, Celeste and I are going to explore some of the challenges and opportunities when we are communicating not only with other people, but also with ourselves. Enjoy. Enjoy. So Celeste, welcome to the author's corner. Thanks, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you. And as I've been reading up on your bio and looking at your books, I just—it's almost like such a glut of things I'm—I'm I'm curious about and would love to talk about that. I'm—I'm I'm, like my brain is really arguing about where to start. So, <laughs> uh, but I guess I would love to. Start with uh because I you've written several books, one of them, by the way, I just bought the the do nothing book because I think that's that's what
0: I need. <laughs> so a lot of people need that yeah. right
2: actually, maybe we I know that's certainly not your first book, but maybe we just start there, like uh what precipitated that project for you as uh it was definitely a different direction than your other your prior books, so
0: yeah, the do nothing was not meant to be a book. It was just started out as a research project to to fix myself, um, mm. to solve my own problems, um, because I was overworked and I was doing all the things that society said would make me super happy and successful and fabulously <laughs> blissful, and they were doing the opposite of that. So. Um, <laughs> Do Nothing um, started out as just a way to figure out what was going wrong in my life. And then as I was doing all of that, all of my friends and colleagues said, well, hey, when you get the answer to those questions, could you tell me? Because ah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm having those same problems. And I realized, oh, maybe maybe I should turn this into a book. And so that's how Do Nothing became a, a book is because I realized it wasn't me. It was us. Right. so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we
2: do tend to hang out with uh, similar people, which I guess kind of brings me back to uh, previous books. And I'm really glad I started there though, because I'm starting to see some interesting connections because your earlier books are more about racism and bias and conversations. And, you know, I was thinking about that too, in the context of book writing, right? Because one of the things you said in speaking of race is that everyone is biased. Yeah, How would you say that particular idea relates to your own experience of writing books?
0: You know, it's a really, really great question. I tend to read a lot of media criticism and media analysis, um, and especially ethicists. I really Mm. love ethicists because I'm a a glutton for punishment that way. And (laughs) I think one of the most fair critiques of a lot of the modern nonfiction is that it tends to be a mono perspective. In other words, it often tends to not know what it doesn't know. Mm-hmm. In other mm-hmm. words, an author will write from their own perspective and not includes other perspectives uh, without even realizing it. Right. 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 And so as an author to accept and sort of allow this idea that every single person is biased, you know, I am, I am black and Jewish and a little bit Native American, That's really true. Not the way most people would say that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a single mother for most of my life, I'm a lot, I fill in a lot of those, you know, underrepresented minority categories. Mm -hmm. There are still a ton of categories I know nothing about and have never experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Understanding that being a member of an upper underrepresented minority, understanding a sliver of racism or understanding a sliver of privilege doesn't mean you understand all of it, mm-hmm. um, is really important for authors to know, to realize that when they're speaking about solutions, for example, those solutions will only work for a certain number of people. Those that are almost sure. never global solutions. Yeah. When they're talking about stories There are rarely universal stories. Yes, yes. (laughs) There are are rarely universal experiences. Mm -hmm. And you have to include that, at least a sense of that in your writing, or you are creating an experience that I assume unintentionally leaves people out. It leaves people on the sidelines and makes them feel excluded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
2: when I'm thinking of the demographics of authors overall, mostly white, mostly male still. So that's got to be true.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's so many, and I'm sure you've seen them. Um, there's so many, you know, satires these days of men writing from the perspective of women <laughs> <laughs> and just doing it horribly. Right. <laughs> um, that's especially in fiction where oh, they're. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You where know, their feet- men write women. There's a whole Twitter feed <laughs> that I just love <laughs> where they they pull out passages of fiction that men have written and it's just absolutely right. um yeah. writing. Yeah. Um, and clearly they either haven't had a, a female read this mm-hmm. and given them feedback that they've trusted right. or they don't even know right. a female. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, to have them read it.
2: Yeah, I found I just want to just expound upon that a little bit.
0: I found that that
2: when men write about women in fiction, they often a lot of these characters show up as like some odd sexual fantasy, (laughs) you know, of the authors. And it's it's not it's not as subtle as maybe they think it is.
0: No. And it's, <laughs> we don't need to go too deep there, but what, what were you going to say? No, and, you know, but it's also like, you know, I, okay. So I generally really don't like self-help
2: mm-hmm. mm.
0: and, and I know that sounds odd because my books keep getting labeled yeah, as self-help, yeah. even though like do nothing is really an anti-self-help book. Do nothing is literally saying you're okay. Just as you are like, don't fix it. Stop looking for self-improvement. Stop becoming and be like, that's what that is about. So I get how the irony of me saying this, but as a genre, I I mostly don't like self-help. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because you have people very often. What you have are people who have succeeded and they think it's been mostly their own choices and their own hard work mm-hmm. that has led to their success mm-hmm. and so they're like here let me show you how you can replicate what i've done yeah. do what i did and then you'll have the success i had and that's almost entirely bullshit. yes mm-hmm. so you know yeah
2: very very anyhow, often they come from highly privileged circumstances
0: and even if they don't yeah. even if they're the one in a million rags to riches i broke every mm-hmm. single you know statistical probability and I'm Oprah. Right. You can't replicate exactly. Oprah's right, experience. Right. <laughs> Do what I did. It wasn't it doesn't matter if you did what she did or did that's it. That's for sure. Like no amount of advice from Oprah, even if you followed every single thing, that's not going to help you. Yeah, it's really your so, own
2: it's your own equation that you have to decipher in a way.
0: Yeah, and I mean there is plenty of good advice out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's not going to come from somebody telling you about what they did. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um you know, yeah. it's just gonna come from like, hey, let's test a bunch of stuff out and see what works for the largest number of people. And then you test this out in your own life yeah. and see if this works for you. Yeah.
2: Test that's and, and, and adjust that's it, it. Right? Like adjust it yeah. based and on adjust your own experience. And adjust
0: accordingly. Yeah. And if this doesn't work for you, here's a couple other ideas that also mm-hmm have worked for other people. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's basically it. And, you know, since we started off talking about bias, this is the bias I'm talking yeah. about, this idea. You know, and this all comes from the availability heuristic, right? Like, you know, back in World War II, they, they started studying, like, which were the best made planes by sending planes out to fight in battles. And then they would study the ones that came back. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually scientists were like, Hold on. <laughs> like, we don't actually, <laughs> you're not actually getting a full picture uh, of what's going on right. here, right? This is the survivor's bias. We need to take a look at what happened to those other ones. Right. What about who are the best
2: pilots?
0: Maybe that had something to do with it. Well, and, or, and we what need were to the figure missions? Why those other ones went right, down. Right. <laughs> You know, exactly. And this is the sort of the same thing in, in self-help. Mm. Let's not look at the people that for some reason right. did great. The plane Let's back. look right. at this other person who is also getting up at six in the morning mm. and making their bed every morning and <laughs> eating oatmeal and working super, super hard. And they're still below the poverty right. line. Right. Let's look at that person and see what's going on there too. Brilliant.
2: So this actually, I, I love that we've gone here because as I was checking out your business, I came across cultural context editing, which I am absolutely intrigued. And uh, I'm thinking of this for, I'm thinking, should my authors be doing this? Because it seems to me like it would be smart.
0: I could not recommend it more. So um, you're talking about Headway. Yes. Which is... So uh, yes, I'm going to answer this about cultural context, but just a, a quick please, ele- elevator please. pitch on yes, because it was a group of public radio journalists who back in 2020, amid all the Black Lives Matter protests, et cetera, et cetera, we began to meet because we were so frustrated over the fact that public radio and public media in general had invested tens of thousands, if not millions, possibly in DEI programs that had just, never worked. They hadn't really significantly moved the needle or brought progress in our industry. And so we thought, okay, we're journalists. We know how to do investigative journalism. Let's do investigations and find out what is the best information on there and what the actually does work mm-hmm. and find the best experts and assemble the best information we have. And so that's what we did. And we found out that, of course, as many of us now know, this traditional DEI training does not work in the least. Um, in fact, it often backfires mm-hmm. and makes these problems. Yeah. So the headway is evidence-based and science-based. These are the things that work. And one of them is this idea of having somebody else mm-hmm. look over right. your stuff. Go figure. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> right. So if if you're writing about a marginalized community, have a member of that community yeah. look over yeah. your writing uh-huh. or your reporting and be ready to accept what they say mm-hmm. rather than become mm-hmm. defensive. Understand that you are coming from a perspective of not really yes. understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. that community fully and be open to the idea that you may have missed, that you have blind spots. So that's what cultural context editing is, is we have this whole directory of people who come from this, this wide variety Mm -hmm. of different Mm -hmm. experiences and they will, you know, for an hourly fee read through and do, and they do fantastic. I mean, they are all, you know, they're mission driven, right? Like this is part of what they believe in and they do an incredibly thorough job and they write all these really, I mean, I've been so impressed by notes. I've learned so much by reading their notes that they put out to the side. Yeah. Explaining why, and they won't, they're not, they're not always dictatorial about it. They'll say, you know, you might want to use this word because and there'll be these long comments in Google drive, you know? So yeah, if writers want to use cultural context editing, I totally recommend it because you might, end up not being on that men write women Twitter feed or any of these other things satirizing.
2: Even if you're not necessarily writing about certain communities, thinking about your audience and who you might be writing to. And are you excluding entire populations of an audience because you're writing from your cultural perspective?
0: Oh, it's such a great point. It's so true. Yeah, it's really true. You know, and I think, you know, think about some of the great authors of all time. I feel so left out, frankly, by like Hemingway. You think? You know? <laughs> I I feel left out by so many so of the many. great oh, authors. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not that I can't enjoy the writing. It's that that's not for me. Mm-hmm. They weren't yeah. writing for me and they didn't care if yeah. I liked it or not. No, they did not. yeah, so since we're all writing mostly for a global audience, since most of us do care, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great idea to sort of have somebody looking over looking it over and saying, "Okay, here's where you lost me."
2: yeah, yeah. And it could be, especially if you're not necessarily writing about a, a specific community, but just you want to include them in your audience. It might just be a very simple adjustment in the languaging or the perspective, just broadening it or adjusting it ever so slightly that could make a world of difference for those readers, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, in the book, Speaking of Race, for me, it was a matter of at the beginning saying, look, there are so many different identities in the world. There and you I, go. Right. <laughs> I, I can't, every single time I mention identities, list all of them. Right. So understand that when I say this, I mean everybody. Just yeah, insert your identity, and I'm talking about that,
2: <laughs> right? So, so even preframing how you preframe in your exactly. introduction or your preface, how you preframe the communication that they are about to receive, that would be a great thing to include.
0: And why not? Why not say "I see you"? Mm-hmm.
2: I think that is the key to a great book, uh, especially when we're talking uh, nonfiction. But you know, potentially any any writing. I think if the reader feels seen, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of the impact.
0: Yeah, and I mean, granted, that's not not every single book is written for everybody, right? If you're a, well, a neuroscientist yeah, specializing course. in yeah. hearing, then obviously you're not writing for everybody.
2: No, and you we and you want those readers though to feel seen. You want your exactly. other neuroscientists to feel seen. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's a really great point because among neuroscientists, right, you don't want to lean into the the past, which excluded scientists of color, which Mm -hmm. excluded female scientists Mm -hmm. often. Right? Yes. So yeah, absolutely. You do want people to feel seen and included understanding that unconsciously we all tend to write in a way that speaks to the people who are similar to us. And we don't have to feel shame about that. We don't have to feel guilty about it. That is human. That's what homo sapiens does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we do as human beings is we tend to like the people who look similar to us, who speak similar to us. That's who we feel comfortable around. Yeah. And that's natural. And so you have to constantly keep it in your mind and get some help and put some energy and intention into breaking away from that. Yeah. Hi there, Robin
2: here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality, standout book? With a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach. In case you're new to the Author's Corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world class experts write world changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers, and others have increased their business income by 600 times or more as a result of their book, Being Out in the World, and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top-notch expert who is ready to write your world-changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. We have a limited number of spots available and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www.RobinColucci.com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, the link is ww.robincalucci.com. Forward slash application. Now back to the show. Well, that brings me to another point that I came across in your work, which I thought would be worth talking about. You pointed out a study that says liberals and conservatives are equally averse to hearing opposing viewpoints, and that I'm going to let tough, you, right? uh, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to let you speak to it, and then I'll uh, give you some follow-ups as as they occur. <laughs>
0: Yes, this is tough for people to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough because in our minds, um, we have become so tribal. And I mean that um, in the political sense, I don't mean that in any reference to in indigenous cultures. We have become tribal to the extent that we basically have polarized everything. Mm. We believe if we see a MAGA hat, we know everything about that person that we need to know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, (laughs) that person is closed off. In other words, to a certain extent, that's partly true, especially Mm -hmm. about somebody who, say, still supports Donald Trump. And Mm -hmm. I'm only speaking as a journalist from an objective viewpoint. Right. right? We're talking Mm -hmm. about somebody who's been impeached twice and has accused of breaking some extremely serious federal laws. Yes, yes. Okay. If your support for that person has not even wavered, (gasps) but... (laughs) Again, as an objective journalist, that's problematic, Mm -hmm. but that's not what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about, when I say that, we're talking about how much you enjoy reading or being exposed to opposing viewpoints. So let's say that you are somebody on the left and you support the access to abortion. Mm -hmm. What they're measuring here is your openness to reading people who want to limit access to abortion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The strength of people's antipathy, I absolutely support access to abortion. My antipathy, my hatred for reading the other side is as strong as their hatred for reading my side. Mm -hmm. They're equal. Yeah. This isn't about our resistance to changing our minds, which is what people tend to equate this with. Do you know Uh what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. These are two different things. Mm.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: This is how much we are willing and open to even listening to being exposed to someone Uh else's opinion.
2: Yeah. And you've been in journalism for a while. Do you see this on the rise? Because I, you know, it seems that way from my point of view.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a difficult, again, objectively speaking, scientifically speaking, it's, it's difficult to objectively measure that. Sure. But yes, anecdotally, I mean, I've been a journalist for well over 25 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. you're talking about confirmation bias. Uh-huh. Um, is confirmation bias on the rise? Has it been on the rise? It absolutely has been. And it, I, I can't say in history, I can only say in my lifetime, you know, the anti-intellectualism, <clears throat> the pushback against <clears throat> things that we took for granted for a very long time. The fact that we seem to, there are there are large swaths of the public, which believe even pretty much every bit of objective fact is up for debate. Yeah. Um, that don't accept that someone who has spent a lifetime studying something might know more about the subject <laughs> than they do. Um, yeah, it, and that, I, I, mean, I don't even,
2: you know, but on the other side of this, something, something that I've witnessed, cause my, actually, my original background was in journalism as well. And something I've witnessed changing over the past, at least 35, 40 years, but probably even less, even more recent than that, maybe the last 20 years is, um, that it's even, you know, it used to it used to be very clear in journalism what was being presented as opinion and what was being presented as fact. Yes. And those lines are so blurred from the the fourth st- estate, you know, the, the one division of this whole system that is supposed to have those clear delineations. Those have become so muddied that it almost...
0: Intentionally.
2: Yeah, but, yeah. Let's and be it, clear here.
0: They were yeah, intentionally muddied.
2: Intentionally yeah. muddied to the point where, well, why wouldn't the public objectively refuse to accept facts when so often the media is putting out opinions as facts, you know, is that just complicating it or are they just reacting to, uh, you know, or, or you know,
0: th- there's so much here. And since I know, we're talking it's, it's, about writing, I know, we're, we're we we might as well yeah. talk about this because yeah. this is part of writing. I agree. You know, yeah, this is something authors have to come up against, which is the attack on our libraries and attack on books. Yes. Yes. Right.
2: Mm-hmm, um, and I'm a nonfiction
0: writer, mm-hmm. and either people can accept that learning facts is a good thing, yeah, or we're doomed, right? No kidding. I mean, we're doomed. Yeah, the human race like can't progress if we can't, you know, learn. And I say this taking the long view, right? Like, yeah, we have for so long thought that humans advanced because we were the smartest. Species, we're we're not. And I very much apologize if if I'm the first person that's told everyone that. We're not the smartest species. Dolphins can project a 3D image of objects into another dolphin's brain.
2: (laughs) I always knew they were cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like if they develop opposable thumbs, we're effed. Uh, Bees have incredibly... Yeah. high intelligence. They can teach each other complicated tasks. Mm. Crows are ridiculously smart. They can both observe. The two crows can observe the same event and have entirely different interpretations of it. I can't, don't even get me started on an octopus. We oh, share right. a lot of the same genes no for kidding. problem solving and intelligence yeah. as, as an octopus. They are
2: geniuses. Absolutely. Humans
0: aren't logical. We are social no. and emotional. Yes. yes. So if we can't learn we're done,
2: and if we can't agree that certain facts are facts, we're
0: really so doomed. yeah. Like, and this like is where books change, come in. Like that's the point. <laughs> so let me just take this a little further because human beings are the only species that that suffers from confirmation bias, mm. and confirmation bias is not helpful, right? Like imagine that you're a, a gazelle, mm-hmm. right, and somebody <laughs> says to you that lake is full of crocodiles. And the gazelle says, I don't believe that. That's not my personal belief. (laughs) I don't personally believe that there are crocodiles in that lake. (laughs) And they then show the gazelle evidence of many, many crocodiles in the lake. Mm -hmm. Video evidence, photographs, witness testimony, and that what confirmation bias does, it then that evidence will then make them believe harder in their own personal belief, right? That's what right. confirmation bias is. Right. So then the gazelle goes, No, 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 I am even further convinced I'm right. <laughs> the there gazelle are no crocodiles fake in the lake.
2: News. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Gazelles will be wiped off the planet. Right, right. Pretty quick. We are the only ones <laughs> that do that. hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so again, taking it back to books, like books are supposed to be the way that we overcome that. That's yes. supposed to be the way that we let people. Uh, investigate things, mm-hmm. experiment with things, test things, find the smartest people in every field, bring us the best knowledge ever. Yeah. And then we learn. Uh-huh. And if that isn't working, yeah. if we're not trusting people to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, it's I don't know. It's tricky, I don't know, Robin. Right?
0: Yeah. Then what? Then like more. People understand this on a regular level, right? Yeah. If someone came into their jobs and started telling them how to do their job that they'd been doing for 10 years, they would be irritated as F.
2: Right. Sure.
0: They'd be like, "Why would you be coming in here and telling me how to do this job I've been doing for 10 years? And yet, they're going to argue with Dr. Anthony Fauci about virology?" <laughs> I you're a plumber, sir. You're a plumber. <laughs> I don't know. I don't
2: yeah. know. Yeah, it's it's it does it does seem to be getting more and more difficult. You know, even with you know, you can with online searches if you're actually looking for facts. Yeah, that is tricky. I mean, how you know verifying sources and you know, I when I was first out of college, I was a research assistant for a New York Times best selling author, and I used to have to go to the library uh, to to get. <laughs> to look up things for him. And, you know, on one hand with the internet, I was like, wow, my job would have been so much easier, you know, (laughs) if I could have did not have to hike it down to the Library of Congress to actually go find something, but could have just found it online. But, you know, on the other hand, in a way, libraries were kind of gatekeepers, I guess, if you will, to some extent, maybe.
0: And still are. And still are,
2: and still are, but just aren't utilized in the same way. Or as much.
0: By some people. <laughs> I say <laughs> that. I'm working on my next book and I have been in the library a lot. A lot. Right. Like Good I have my you. reader card for the Library of Congress. Let <laughs> me bring my reader card for the Huntington Library in California. And, you know, you go through all these things to get into special collections, right? It's like, yes. It's like well, trying to get security clearance um, at the White House.
2: Yes, yes.
0: You know, when you're a journalist and you go through so much to confirm sources. Right and go through so much. You know, I think about like how much it takes, especially like at an NPR, mm-hmm. like our process to confirm breaking news, for example, yeah. yeah, is so, it's rigorous. Rigorous, yeah. And there's a reason for that mm-hmm. because sometimes th- there's real stakes to making sure that information is accurate before you report it. Mm -hmm. We need independent sources. They need to have no, you know, dogs in the hunt. Yeah. Exactly. They need to have credibility. They can't just have a title. That title needs to be from a credible source, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to be current. It can't be former, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to be confirmed by another source that also meets all that criteria independently. They can't have been standing next to each other or whatever. Right, right. And then you have people who are like, get in an argument with their uncle over Thanksgiving dinner. And they're like, I don't believe that climate change is real. They go to Google, um, climate change is not real. First thing that comes up is so like, see? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like that blog you found on Medium written by right. <laughs> a sophomore at Baker College. Sorry, not to you know just pick on Baker College. Some
2: college. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whatever. Doesn't, doesn't no does not compete with the, the Noah Exactly. That's not uh, white the smell paper test. From yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your current book. Uh, It starts with self-compassion. Yeah. What uh, inspired you to write that?
0: So actually, um, I started researching self-compassion as I was writing the book Speaking of Race Mm. because having conversations about race requires you to have some (laughs) (laughs) self-compassion. And I say that because one of the things I talk about in that book Speaking of Race is that you're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the biggest fears people have is, they might make a mistake. They might say the wrong thing, right? And so one of the things I say in that book is like, so let me get that out of the way right now. Yeah,
2: you're gonna. Mm -hmm. So let me just... Not I might, you're gonna.
0: Yeah, it's gonna happen. (laughs) So let's learn now what to do when that happens. Right, right. So let's walk you through that. Mm -hmm. When you make a mistake and say the wrong thing, here's what you do. And so I started doing research on on self-compassion, which is very distinct from self-esteem, extreme—it's almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Very distinct from many other terms that we know, like self, uh, self-love, uh, self-pity, all of those other things. Self-compassion is it—it's its own mm-hmm. extremely distinct quality. And self-compassion is a quality that has been understood and taught for centuries in many Eastern cultures. Yeah, yeah, but. Not in Western world at all. Mm. When we think about the uh, compassion in the Western world, we're almost always talking about compassion toward others. Right. What I discovered as I began to research self-compassion was that the research into self-compassion is pretty astonishing. Like when when you're doing research into neuroscience and <gasps> behavioral science, as I do, social psychology, those are my fields, the results are fairly muted. Right. We're always talking in in generalities for most people in general, <laughs> most right. of the time, you know, that's of course. that's the that's where you live. Yeah. But self-compassion, like, I literally went on the hunt for all the studies proving its limitations,
2: mm.
0: its downsides. I haven't found them yet. Right, I, I'm sure <laughs> they exist because everything has a downside. <laughs> everything, um, but there is no clinical research showing them.
2: I can imagine that. Yeah,
0: um, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, how good self compassion is for you, and how relatively easily taught it is, mm. and mm-hmm. self taught. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's easy to practice. Right. Right. (laughs) It just means you can learn it yourself. So I was like, well, this is my bailiwick. Like, this is what I do. This is, this is where I live. Like, here's the thing that is super practical, Mm -hmm. um, can help you immediately. And I can teach it to you one, two, three. So that's where that came from. And and it's a, it's an ebook that I wrote for Scribd, but actually I, I might end up expanding that out because it's just such a, Mm -hmm. it's a, It's a fertile field and it's one that I think it touches on so much of the work that I do, all the conversational pieces, even do nothing in terms Mm of our work lives that, yeah, it might end up being a larger project.
2: Yeah, brilliant. Wow. Well, I cannot believe how quickly this time has flown by and all the ground that we've covered has been so fascinating and wow. I've, I've really enjoyed this. So I am going to toss to you my signature final question, which is, Celeste, what have I not asked you that you would love to answer?
0: Um, I would like to, you to ask me about process itself, like how I write.
2: I would love you to answer that question, please.
0: Because I have so many friends and you know, I do writers meetups and stuff. I have so many friends that end up getting stuck mm-hmm. or they'll go weeks without writing at all. So I don't know if this will help other people, but I just want to explain how that I've worked that out for myself. So the thing of it is, first of all, we, I got to come from neuroscience because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. The, the fact of the matter is, is that all of us only have about maybe four possibly up to five hours of f- real focus every day. That's it. That's all you get. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be intentional about how you're going to use that four hours of focus. And that's not you. That's everybody. Charles Darwin Mm -hmm. only had four hours of
2: focused work. (laughs) Right.
0: Right? So figure out, I mean, you can do, there's other stuff you can do. You know, most email doesn't take focused work. Mm -hmm. Um, Your dishes don't take focused work. So your writing does. Right. So you got to be intentional that you're a choosing the best time of day. Yes. Um, setting yourself up for success with that focused work, Mm -hmm. making sure you're hydrated. But another thing is find the environment for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like I found, I set up a little desk for myself, a little writing desk for myself where there is no computer that has tabs open that are going to distract me.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It has little, because I was a nerdy kid and the the library carols were really comfortable to me. Yeah, yeah. I created a desk that kind of replicates it a little. Nice. And so when I sit at it, it creates that feeling for me. Yeah. Um, But find one for yourself that Mm -hmm. makes you feel focused and relaxed, but not distracted. Right. Without your phone sitting on your desk, because we know that even the sight of your phone distracts your brain and makes it feel like it's trying to multitask. Mm -hmm. And turn off all the notifications when I am trying to write. I have an actual... Landline phone, and I got this little device that connects to my phone, my cell phone, through Bluetooth, so that if a phone call comes in, it rings on the landline phone. And oh. I have to get up from my desk and pick up the phone. Ah, yeah. And I have an hourglass timer, and I'm like, okay, I need to do at least an hour of writing. Flip the cool. hourglass timer, and I sit down. And I write. Yeah. And you need to find a special place. This isn't mm-hmm. the place where you do all your other stuff. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is the place where you write. Yeah. It's just like when you sit down when you're having trouble sleeping, the doctor will tell you that you do nothing else in bed. You don't look at your phone in bed. Right. You don't look at your laptop, nothing. You need to train your brain that the bed is for sleeping. Right. You need to find this place where you can train your brain that that's where mm-hmm. you focus and you write. Yeah. I'm so, thinking of
2: uh, Emily Dickinson's desk, little her little writing table by the window.
0: Yeah. It doesn't matter how big it is. Yeah. yeah. Just set up your writing desk mm-hmm. and keep it sacrosanct yeah. because that's the kind of respect you need. You know, my grandfather is a famous composer and he, every single day- he had a little music room with his piano in it and his he had a music typewriter. Every day he would get up and he would get dressed in a three-piece suit with wingtips and a vest. Wow. And he would go into his room and close the door and write his music. And when he couldn't write anymore, he would leave. Wow. And I want all of us who are creatives, <laughs> yes, to have that kind of respect. <laughs> yeah. For the work, give show it respect and it will return that respect.
2: Right. It'll respect you back. Yeah. Yeah. Take care of it. It will take care of you. Precisely. Brilliant. Wow. Well, on that thought, uh, Celeste, just thank you for being here and taking care of us and, uh, and sharing all this wonderful wisdom on the author's corner.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.